we're on Acts 4.8. We're on the same PowerPoint we used a couple weeks ago when it was my turn to do Sunday school. Acts 4.8. Let me, um, why don't I read the, the pericope and uh, get us to where, you know, in, in the story here. Starting with verse 4. Now, as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the commander of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were provoked that they were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection from the dead using Jesus as the example. So they seized them and put them in custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and a number of the men came to about 5,000. And so then, verse 5, the next day their rulers, elders, scribes, assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all the members of the priestly family. And after they had Peter and John stand before them, they asked the question, by what power and what name have you done this? Verse 8, and Peter, here's where we're going to begin. And Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers and people, uh, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to the people, and we must be saved by it. All right. That's a really great verse. We must be saved by it. And there's the exclusivity of the Christian claim and of the Christian gospel. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the gospel and these words of salvation. May we open our hearts and learn and grow in grace and in sanctification, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So now I'm going to flip down to where we were when I ran out of time a couple weeks ago. And I was pointing out that one of the narrative, how would I say it, processes, strategies that Luke uses is by identifying who speaks authoritatively for God and who should we listen to. There are a number of people that are quoted as speaking in Luke-Acts, and Luke uses certain devices to show us, okay, this one is from God, listen. God is speaking to us. And here's one, I have it highlighted in red, filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke is using that so we know 
somebody filled with the Holy Spirit, we ought to listen to what they're saying. And you can trace that all the way from Luke 1 through the end of Acts. And that's the most significant reason Luke is using this. And as I probably mentioned, a lot of times people have gone through here trying to come up with second blessing doctrines and uh, things like that. And that's not Luke's point. The Luke's point is that the gospel is being preached. Listen, this is important. So I think I mentioned that. And there was a lame man who had been healed, and we saw a few weeks ago that that was prophesied that would happen when Messiah came in Isaiah chapter 35. And so a deed, a kind deed had been done, and here he was healed, but the Greek word, I have it highlighted in blue for healed, is sozo, which means saved. The word, the Greek word for saved in the New Testament, sozo, that's kind of a cool word. I like that word. <laughs> what it means is to be rescued from serious peril. All right? So what peril you're rescued from is determined by the context. When the narrative of the shipwreck happens later in Acts, they were saved from death by listening to Paul. He uses the same word. But here is talking about spiritual salvation and the reception of eternal life. So the infilling of the Holy Spirit is thematic in Luke-Acts. Salvation is thematic in Luke-Acts. What I'm going to do is I'm going to finish this particular PowerPoint, and then we're going to do a little review and go back to the Zacchaeus narrative. I had some great material on Zacchaeus, and I just have to share it with you. And it's about salvation. If you want to know about salvation in the New Testament, a good place to start is to read Luke-Acts as a two-volume work. One important theme is salvation. And it's very important. We don't outgrow the need to hear about salvation. Remember when Jude wrote to warn them about false teachers. He said he intended to write to them about their mutual salvation. If we have the opportunity, if we get a little break from fighting false teachers, the first thing we should do is teach about our mutual salvation. That's what I'm doing today. In verse 10, now this is Peter speaking to the Sanhedrin. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, who they were, how they were composed. And the Sadducees, I probably told you, but I, I'm not sure I can remember if I did. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They only believed in the Pentateuch, not the rest of the Old Testament. They were political people. They were power brokers. They usually controlled the Sanhedrin. They didn't totally compose it, but they were the movers and shakers, and they had a cozy relationship with Rome. And one of the things that's going on in the Gospels is the Sanhedrin not wanting to lose their power with Rome, and they were afraid they would because the people 
we're following Jesus and now the apostles. Okay, so verse 10, as Peter preaches to the Sanhedrin, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you here healthy. They heard about Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. I've told you this before. It bears repeating. Every sermon in a book of Acts mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we should take that as an important pattern. And when we preach the gospel, we should preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Dana did a series of Wednesday night classes here showing evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the evidence is compelling. There's a lot of it, and it's compelling. We are not, as Christians, people who are just telling everybody else, hey, we have a right to believe whatever we want, so just give us our right to believe. It may be true. It's nice to have a right to believe. But that's not our claim. Well, we have uh, some kind of religion just like the Muslims and the Buddhists and the Hindus. We all just get along. We're claiming more than that. We're claiming that Jesus was raised from the dead, that these things happened in cold, sober history, and that God is commanding people to repent and believe the gospel. It's not enough that somebody says, well, okay, you get to have your myth and we have our myth. No, we're talking about cold, sober facts. And Paul said that if Christ wasn't raised, we're of all people most miserable. Because we're saying that there's resurrection from the dead when there isn't any. And the New Testament does not consider myths and fables as worthy of being followed. So my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I am not preaching to you about the right to believe myths and fables. I'm preaching to you about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we'll see as we go on in Acts 4 that the one thing that these Jewish leaders would not tolerate was the preaching of the resurrection of Christ and not to preach in his name. That's what they wanted to stop. They didn't care, literally. You can heal every layman in Israel. They don't care. Just don't preach Christ. Okay, so we don't want to reduce Christianity to just a do-good religion. We need to preach Christ. He preaches the resurrection. Now, the Sanhedrin, despite their best efforts, could not stop the plan and purpose of God going forward. Peter preached about that in Acts 2, about the purpose of God, another theme in Acts and Luke. So, that's what it says. Let's go to verse 11, Acts 4, 11. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you, builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now, 
Peter is alluding to an important psalm that was a messianic psalm. He's applying it to the Sanhedrin. And he's telling them that the role they have is a bad one. That the capstone chosen by God for Israel, Messiah himself, was rejected by the people who were the builders, that is, the movers and shakers in Israel. Uh, this is a reference to Psalm 118.22. By the way, in case you weren't here, what I'm going to do is read the scriptures, but I want you to feel free to question and comment. So rather than handing out scriptures for you to read, I'll read the scripture, but you feel free to talk, question, uh, if you want to affirm what's being said or make an application to it, that's for you to do. And Brian has the mic. Okay. What does it say in Psalm 118, 22 and 23? I will read it. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Okay. The term here is in the Septuagint uh, scorned or despised or regarded as contemptible. So God sent his Messiah to Israel to bring salvation. But the people who had the religious authority and the political authority regarded their own Messiah as despised and contemptible. But the one fact in history that made them look really bad was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he predicted his own resurrection from the dead. And it was part of the accusation against him that was brought before the authorities, both re religious and civil. This man said, tear down his temple and rebuild it in three days. And we know from John that that was a reference to his body and to his resurrection. And so they accused him of having said that before he was crucified and when he was on trial. So even the enemies of Jesus are confessing that he predicted his own resurrection. They wanted to use that to accuse him of sorcery, okay, which would be punishable by death. Okay, and they said, well, it took us so many years to build his temple. He's going to tear it down and rebuild it in three days. That's sorcery. But he was speaking of his resurrection. And so when the resurrection is mentioned, it reminds them of the fact that they scorned, despised, and rejected him. Now, other verses in the Old Testament that use terms like this or the same one in the Greek Old Testament. One is 1 Samuel 8, 7. If you want to jot that down, I'll read it. 1 Samuel 8, 7. You can turn to it. If you wish. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. 
for they have not rejected you. They've rejected me from being king over them. So that's in the Old Testament using the same word. They rejected God as being king over them. So in the Old Testament, God is rejected as being king. In the New Testament, Messiah is rejected as being king. But God's purposes will stand. My dear friends, we must know that when we preach the gospel, we're preaching exactly what people do not want to hear, but that God will use to save those who will believe. And we'll look at the next verse when we get to it and see, we don't know who exactly will believe, but we must preach the gospel. Now, if you want to turn to this, I'll, I'll take a little time to give you time to find it. Isaiah 53, 3. It's important for us. I'll say this while you're looking for it. Isaiah 53, 3. It's important for us to be able to prove that the Old Testament predicted that Messiah would be rejected. Otherwise, people will use that as a sign that he really wasn't the Messiah. You see that in Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo, a Jew, a little later in church history, but early in church history. Well, how could he be the Messiah? He was rejected, cursed, hung on a tree. So Martyr, Justin, that is, had to prove that this was all prophesied by God. Okay, here it is, Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So we have here Psalm 118, the stone rejected by the builders, Isaiah 53, 3, the suffering servant despised by men. And the type of this, back in 1 Samuel 8, where they rejected God from reigning over them. So Messiah is God incarnate, and he comes and is rejected. They rejected Christ, but God exalted him and made him the chief cornerstone. One more verse on this PowerPoint, Luke 4, 12. Very important one, one a lot of people memorize. This is Peter continuing his speech to the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. So here we have, in unmistakable terms, the exclusive claim of the gospel. You probably know that exclusive claims are a big no-no in modern society. Everybody can have their religious ideas, but nobody can discuss whether they're true or false. Just let me have my religion it has its own realm where it exists over here, untouched by facts, untouched by verification. 
It's just a blind leap of faith. And oh, do we have religions like that? Neo-paganism is the de facto religion of the day. And people are prone to take blind leaps into never-never land without any verification of what's right or what's true. Christianity, even if we're given a place at the table this way, okay, we get to have our blind leap too. Okay, you blindly leap into Christianity. Somebody else blindly leaps into global warming. Oh, yeah, that's a religion. If you think global warming is anything but a religion, you haven't studied it very well. It's not science, it's religion. And even Al Gore, who, who started the craze, shows in his book that he believes in panentheism. God is in everything. And so, yes, uh, Brian. Act it's gotten so bad that now religions are cutting off people's heads in the name of God, and we don't even say what it is. Yeah, we won't admit what kind of religion it is. Well, what I'm saying to us as Christians is say no to being offered a place at the postmodern table as long as we don't make any claims. Live and let live. You can be a Christian. I can be a neo-pagan, and I can be a Wiccan, and I can be a Buddhist. Just don't make any claims. Then everything is okay. We can't accept those terms because only Christ was raised from the dead. Only Christ brings salvation. There's no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. And I'll talk about must in a moment. Yes. I just wanted to, I mean, not to be critical, but that um, slide is actually Acts 4.12, not Luke's four, Luke 4.12. You're right. <laughs> Good for you. We're in Acts 4.12. The PowerPoint is wrong. Scripture's infallible, I'm not. All right. Under heaven means in all of creation. Saved, as I said earlier, is so-and-so. It's thematic in Luke Acts. And let me just show you that if you want to turn to a Luke 2.25. I never get tired of marveling at the glorious way God inspired Luke to write Luke Acts. In fact, we're going to go from here back to the Zacchaeus narrative to show how God develops the idea of salvation. It's because this 4.12 is a key verse about salvation. People won't admit they need to be saved because they won't admit that there's any wrath of God against sin. They think that they can spurn God, thumb their nose at the gospel, live any way they see fit, and then go to heaven. And then there's just this mythological romanticism. I hear this all the time. Well, so-and-so must be happy looking down. Some unsaved person 
died and now they're in heaven looking down even though they're not, they were never even saved. And people who know the gospel and would not want to be looking down because this world is full of sin and misery. And when we are in heaven, we'll see Jesus in the glories of eternity. I seriously doubt we want to spend our time watching what we just got out of. <laughs> Luke 2.25, you found it yet? Good for you. Here, let me read it. And there was a man, this is about Simeon, there was a man in Jerusalem, his name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, let's stop right there. What is Luke trying to tell us? Listen to him, right? Do you agree? Well, look at it. He's devout. He's righteous. He's looking for the promised salvation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit's on him. Now, that's a lot of good credentials. Okay? So, therefore, Luke, that's his way. That's how he, that's his discourse marker. Listen to what he's going to say. It's going to set a theme for what's going to come later in Luke Acts. Verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, we can debate, oh, how, how was that? And was he an infallible prophet? And how that, I would suggest not to get hung up on that. And let's see what God does. The Lord is saying, listen to this guy. How he knew that, I don't know, but he did, according to Luke. Verse 27, and he came in the Spirit, again, telling us about the Holy Spirit, into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, verse 29, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. All right. Do we know what we're supposed to be looking for? Here already in, in Luke 2, we have a hint that God is going to save Gentiles. That doesn't happen until Acts. And God also has a future plan for Israel. So Jews and Gentiles are going to find salvation. And Simeon's exclamation under the power of the Holy Spirit becomes thematic in setting the scene for Luke-Acts. Now on Luke 7.50, let me show you that. Luke 7.50. This is about a sinner woman who came into a banquet that was given by a Pharisee and began to weep on Jesus' feet and wipe them with her hair. And the Pharisees was thinking, this is really bad. Jesus can't be a prophet or he wouldn't put up with this. 
This is a sinner. This is an unclean sinner woman. Now, what did he say to her? Luke 7, 50. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, sozo, go in peace. My dear friends, if God can save a harlot from the street who is weeping on Jesus' feet, do you believe that God can save you? Do you believe that God can save the people around us? Is there anybody so bad that God can't possibly save them? No. Do we have any reason not to be evangelistic? What are we being told in Luke 7? Don't be like the Pharisee. And not even bring the gospel to people because we're afraid of being defiled in the process. We won't be defiled by preaching to the lost. Acts 16, 30 to 32, and then we're going to go to our next PowerPoint. Acts 16, 30 to 32, we're in Acts now. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So here again is the theme of salvation. It's time to a jailer. And we see the gospel throughout Acts going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most part of the world. That's the theme of Acts. And God is bringing salvation. From the very beginning of Luke to the very end of Acts, salvation is coming to unexpected people. If we need any more proof that God can save anybody, there's the fact that we're sitting here saved. Amen? Did we have some great thing going for us? I don't think so. Now we're going to go to the next PowerPoint, which is going to be the Zacchaeus narrative, and I want to illustrate what I've been saying here. You're going to have to hang on to these. Don't lose them. Somebody's going off there. (laughs) Hopefully they give up. All right, now we want to talk about salvation, which is our theme. Well, remember now in verse 12, it said, whereby we must be saved. He uses this term day that we've been talking about, and it's a term that means divine necessity. We must, it's necessary that we're saved by the name of Jesus. Name signifying his person and work and character. Let me read the narrative to you, Luke 19, 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Think about context. How difficult it is for a rich man to be saved. I'll show you as we go through this all the obstacles that were there to keep this man from being saved. Many obstacles. But God had his own plan. Verse 3, 
Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up in, into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must, there's our word again, day, divine necessity, stay at your house. Let me stop right there. Keep in mind, this day, Delta, Epsilon, Iota, is a divine necessity because of God's purposes. It's not that Jesus couldn't possibly stay anywhere else. It was God's purpose that he would stay there. Now, there's a lot going on. Verse 6, and he hurried and came down and received him gladly. That's important, the gladly. And when, he saw, when they saw it, they began to grumble. That's important, grumble. We'll show you how that's thematic in the Bible. Saying, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Remember Luke 7, the sinner woman who was saved? Here's another sinner. Why would you go stay with a sinner? Verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Verse 9, and Jesus said to him, Today, again thematic, salvation, thematic, has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Another issue, who's the true son of Abraham? Wow! <laughs> For the son of man, here is the over writing principle to be learned. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Outstanding. Wow. You know, I thank God when I was a new Christian that these sort of things were on the lips of the preachers and the hearts of the people. And since those days, evangelicalism, I think, has lost its way. Rather than seeking and saving the lost, we're trying to make life a little more comfortable, solve problems, manage people, and find self-esteem. That's not the theme of the Bible, nor is it the theme of Jesus. Slide number two in this PowerPoint. I'm going to go back to the blind beggar. Now, remember the chapter divisions are artificial. The two narratives of Bartimaeus, he's not named in Luke, he is, I believe, in Mark. These two are bookends, okay? On the way into Jericho, there's a blind beggar another social outcast, right? Has nothing going for him. Considered cursed by the people. Cries out to Jesus and is saved. The term saved is used. 
Okay, so here's a blind beggar. So he comes on the way into town. Then he just goes through town. Now, according to Kenneth Bailey, because he was a visiting dignitary, they would expect him to stay. And, he, and to stay with the most respectable people in town. But he doesn't stay at all. He goes right on through. Because remember, the Zacchaeus encounters on the way out. On the way in, he saves a blind beggar. On the way out, he saves a rich tax collector. Goes right on through Jericho. Nuts to them. Oh, yeah. Learn, remember, you got to learn how to read. And it gets even more exciting as you understand what God is doing. So here is the man. I'll start reading with verse 35 so we get the context. As he approached, okay, so he's on his way in, blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Now remember in Acts 4, what happened? We had a lame man begging. What does the Old Testament predict? That when Messiah comes, the lame will walk and the blind will see. Do you get it? <laughs> okay. And when he heard the crowd going by, obviously he can't see, he asked what's happening. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he shouted, Jesus, son of David. Now he knew some theology. How does a blind man know theology? I don't know. But he knows Jesus is the Messiah. The son of David is the Messianic king. Have mercy on me. Notice he asked for mercy. He didn't cry out for what he had coming. I want you to give me what I have coming. Is that a good thing to ask for? <laughs> Very bad. That idea. I think mercy is a way better idea. Those who were in front sternly... In other words, they were mad at him. Ordered him to be quiet or to shut up, be muzzled. He shouted even more loudly. Now here's a man who was blind, had very little going for him, and now he had one other obstacle. The people around didn't want him to participate. They told him to be quiet. And he could have just thought, well, yeah, the blind guy always... Gets that treatment. I guess Jesus has more respectable people than me to come and help. But he doesn't do that. He just keeps crying out to God. Shouted more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still and ordered that the man be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me see Again, and Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. I'm using the new RSV because it uses the term saved, which is in the Greek. Immediately, he regained his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, praised God. This is a story of salvation. Now, just the healing of the blind, just like the other one, wasn't just the healing of the lame but a story of salvation. What do we learn on the surface? I'm going to go into a little more depth here, but what do we learn? Call on the Lord when he is near. Call on the Lord when he is near. My dear 
brothers and sisters. There are very few of us who don't get into situations that are very dire, way more than what we can handle. Sometimes life and death hang in the balance. And what needs to be indelibly written on our heart is how badly we need God through his Messiah to save us in a comprehensive sense. And I've certainly been in a condition more than once where the only thing I had left to do was to literally cry out to God to have mercy on me. And guess what? He did. I'm still here. I'm still preaching the gospel. He was glorifying God, so this man was saved, not just healed. He was preaching the gospel by glorifying God and bringing praise to his name. I have a couple passages here. Let's look at them. Psalm 91, 14 through 16. I hope we all believe in the authority and inerrancy of Scripture because it's an amazing thing to behold. Psalm 91, 14, because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. Look at verse 15. He will call on me and I will answer him and I will be with him in trouble and I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. Blessed is the man who calls on the name of the Lord in a time where salvation is needed. We honor God by calling on the name of the Lord when we need rescue. Psalm 50 and verse 15, look at this one. Hold on a second for Paul. Um, the I will want to refer to son of David, um, have mercy on me. The, the term son of David, does that indicate a prior work of the Holy Spirit? It, it shows that somehow he knew the claims of the Bible. And how a blind man would know that, I'm not sure. But it would be a reference to 2 Samuel 7. The promises in that chapter. The reason why I bring that up is there are some people... Well, for might hit their thumb with a hammer and call upon the name of the Lord, so to speak. So the motives ah. of uh, you know the motive of him was it um, you know you anyway I, I'm just thinking he was of, looking for mercy. He wasn't. Yeah, I know. I remember seeing a debate between this uh, a guy who was uh, a skeptic and atheist and a guy who was a Christian heart surgeon or something and. This was back in the 80s. And the, the, the Christian doctor was saying the chaplain at the hospital, the only time he used the name of Jesus is when he slammed his finger in the door. Well, you can imagine what good that was going to do anybody. He cursed Christ, but will not call on him. Isn't this evangelistic? Are we going to curse Christ for our situation, or are we going to call on him for mercy? This man could have cursed Christ and said, why did you make me blind and everybody else seeing? And why are these people so cruel to me? 
and why am I being mistreated by your followers? This guy had a lot of reasons to despair, but instead he called it on the name of the Lord. Look at Psalm 50 and verse 15. This is the one you're going to want to know. It's a, it's a command from God. Call on me in the day of trouble, and I will rescue you, and you will honor me. Now, get this straight. God doesn't run out of salvation. Okay? When we call on God and he rescues us, he brings honor and glory to his own name. It says in Romans 10, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So on the way in, he encounters a blind beggar on the way to Jericho. And remember here, in verse 41, 42, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me see again. And he said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. Kenneth Bailey has some fantastic material on this. He, his... Uh, material helps us is called Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes I highly recommend his work I learned about him from John MacArthur who drew on some of his material when he was preaching on the prodigal son and wrote a book on it he got a lot of that from Bailey now Bailey was pointing out and this would be true in the Middle East even to now is that the blind man his begging was his way of making a living, okay? And it was his way of survival. Once he's healed, he's an adult, but he has no education. He has no trade. He has no known way of supporting himself, but he won't be able to beg anymore. So by asking Jesus to give him his sight, he was giving up everything but Jesus, Oh, yeah. It's not that he can go down to adult community college for remedial education. So I recommend this. I'm going to be quoting it in the Zacchaeus. Kenneth E. Bailey, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. There's several other books of his that I have and I used when I was preaching through Luke. Isaiah 29, 18. It says, on that day, what day? The day of Messianic salvation implied here. The deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Scripture is fulfilled. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. Psalm 146, 8. The Lord loves the righteous. So, on the way into Jericho, a blind beggar finds messianic salvation. And what he did was cry out to God for mercy. Now, there's a lot of things I suppose he could have been thinking about once he received his sight. Never seen the Mediterranean Sea. Never seen anything. Never saw the Sea of Galilee. People spent a lot of money today to go to Israel to see what's there. But it's said here that he followed Jesus. He saw everything he needed to see. Jesus. Now let's go to, I want to introduce the Zacchaeus narrative, and we'll come back to it next week. Luke 19, 1 and 2. Now remember this, I take these two as a pair. 
Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus, they're bookends of stories of healing and salvation. In some ways, they're polar opposites. A blind beggar and a rich man. But what made them the same? And again, I have to acknowledge the help that I received from Kenneth Bailey. They were both social outcasts. All right? And this is used by Luke to show us the broad panoramic view of the range of messianic salvation. As Bailey points out, the blind beggar was the oppressed. Now remember how they told him to be quiet and you're bugging us. This isn't for you. Just sit there along the road. That's your role in life. So he was the oppressed. And in the bigger scheme of things, the tax collector was the oppressor. He was the one who took money and was a tax farmer, was considered unclean and hated, but yet became rich in the process, and he was a collaborator with the Romans. So here in this two-pericope narrative, the oppressed is saved and the oppressor is saved. And the term for saved is used in each case. And if we don't get any other takeaway, we should get this one. God can save anybody. If we didn't already know that. So he entered Jericho and passing through. So he didn't stop. The nobility of the town would have wanted him to come and find hospitality from important people. It was just the way it is to this very day in the Middle East, as Bailey points out. But he didn't do that. In a sense, he snubbed the town, and he went on through. Now, we have the name of the man, Zacchaeus, and it says he's a ruler, a, a chief, a ruler tax collector, and was rich. So we have here obstacles to salvation. Obstacles to salvation. The obstacle of being blind and then rejected when you do try to cry out to God and the obstacle of being rich and being hated by everybody as a collaborator with the Romans. And you might just give up. In both cases, one of the obstacles to salvation was the crowd. The crowd is an obstacle to coming to Jesus. We had learned earlier in Luke 18, verse 25, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Luke 18, 25. Now, you got to think of yourself as a reader of Luke Acts for the first time. And you just read in verse eight, chapter 18, it's harder for a camel or easier for a camel to go through eye of a needle, which means impossible, than for a rich man to enter a kingdom. But we find out God, with God all things are possible. So now that we're told right after that that Zacchaeus was a rich man, our mind is thinking, well, this guy can't be saved. 
He's one of these people. Remember, the rich ruler had walked away unsaved. So we wouldn't necessarily, even as readers, think, well, this guy's going to be saved. There's a lot in this Zacchaeus narrative. And I think we've relegated it to Sunday school stories. You know, because it's, it's an icing you can put up on a felt board, you know, the tree, the little wee guy. And he goes, and the kids like this. It's a very cool story for kids. But this isn't a little story for kids. This is a story for readers to learn about God's plan of salvation. Now, another thing is going on, starting in Luke 9.51, when I first preached through Luke, I had this, there's a caustic structure that follows the entire travel narrative. And this is part of it, but it's toward the end. In Luke, starting with Luke 9.51, everything is about a journey to Jerusalem. Look at, uh, let me read Luke 9.51. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Notice how Luke says it. The days are approaching for his ascension. Now, in Acts, do we read about his ascension? Where does he ascend? All the way into heaven. Okay, so in Luke, Acts, starting with Luke 9.51, and there's other things in there about his rejection, his crucifixion, and all those passages. He's on this journey that goes all the way up to Jerusalem and continues up from the resurrection and then all the way up into heaven. That's the travel narrative. It ends in heaven. Wow. You know, the more I study Luke Acts, it's just, I'm blown away by the Gospels and by the Holy Spirit inspiring this material. And so on his way to rejection and resurrection and ultimately to heaven, he heals and saves the blind, the despised, the oppressed, and the oppressor, the rejected and even a rich man. And the point that Luke is making is that all things are possible with God. My dear friends, it's my great privilege today to be sharing with you God's work of salvation. And let me say this as by way of closing application if we ever get bored with the gospel of salvation and want to go on to some better topic we're in grave danger you would think luke would get tired of writing about salvation and go to something better but he doesn't Uh, bring the mic to dana and how the topic of salvation from the wrath of god ever got off the table in evangelicalism, I don't know, but it's horrible. Yes. Just one little uh, historical archaeological note about this story about the blind man. The, the parallel account in Matthew says that he was going from, from Jericho. And the account in Luke says he's going to Jericho. So skeptics point to that and say, look, that's a, that's a contradiction. 
Well, actually, it's not. Jericho, yeah. Because at that time in history, there were two Jerichos. There's an old Jericho and a new Jericho. So rather than contradicting, the, when you put the two accounts together, it gives us more detail about exactly where this happened. Yeah, well, I looked that up once, too, and I found the term that's used for into and out of is determined by the context. But, uh, you know, liberals are finding nothing better to do than to find errors in the Bible. But what a terrible job because they keep getting refuted by archaeology. <laughs> One more, and then we'll, uh, I'll close in prayer. I was thinking it was really likely that um, Zacchaeus heard Jesus talking about how hard it was for a rich man to be saved because he you know, made all the effort to climb up a tree to, to see him. So that, I thought that was interesting the way you yeah. pointed that I'll out. Yeah, I'll tell you, let me give you a preview for next week. There's all kinds of stuff going on here that I wouldn't know about had I not read it in Bailey here about the sycamore tree, and it's actually mentioned in Talmud, and what were the issues with it, and they were only allowed outside of town, and why they were only allowed outside of town, and what would have been going on with collaborators and how it was Jesus knew he was up there, and, and what crowds would typically do. Oh, my, hang on to your hat. Next week, we're going to explore things that are being told us by Luke, but we might miss we did not know the background. Okay, so I promise you some more material about salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to look into things that angels desire to see. And that you save the most rejected and oppressed and even the rich oppressor and all who call upon your name. So today we thank you that your Holy Spirit convicted us of sin so that we knew we needed to call upon you to be saved from your wrath. And if there's any here today who haven't done so, I pray that today they will call upon you. And find that name of Jesus whereby we must be saved. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you next week. <laughs>